Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to part three of our discussion on The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Today, we are discussing pages 205 to 297. This part of the book got a little bit more hopeful in that we've been drudging through quite a few case studies of the intensely traumatic, uh, which is par for the course for a book on the healing and understanding the brain on trauma. Uh, So I particularly enjoyed this section the most so far, um, beyond the, of course, learning some of the the foundational stuff in previous weeks, but actually getting at some things that are supposed to help with trauma. And I feel like we're getting some answers to some questions that were asked in our last month's book club, like about um, the treating of trauma as well. So it'll be fun to make those connections. Good times. But anyway... Hopping in, initial reactions. What are we thinking? I guess what stood out to me most, like, I didn't really know um, EDMR. I didn't really know anything about it um, until I started reading it. I mean, we talked about it a little bit last month with the Prince Harry, but um, it gave me some insight into exactly what it was, and that was helpful. Um, I didn't mind his him going back to all his studies on this one to explain what was really going on. So that was helpful. Well, I'll hop in with uh, something that started the section. So the section that we read for this time started on chapter 13. And I really like the first paragraph and a half of chapter 13. So I'm going to share that quote, nobody can treat a war or abuse, rape, molestation, or any other horrendous event for that matter. What has happened cannot be undone, but what can be dealt with are the imprints of the trauma on body, mind, and soul, the crushing sensations in your chest that you may label as anxiety or depression, the fear of losing control, always being on alert for danger or rejection, the self-loathing, the nightmares and flashbacks, the fog that keeps you from staying on task and from engaging fully in what you are doing, being unable to fully open your heart to another human being. Trauma robs you of the feeling that you are in charge of yourself. The challenge of recovery is to reestablish ownership of your body and your mind of yourself. This means feeling free to know what you know and feel what you feel without becoming overwhelmed, enraged, ashamed, or collapsed, end quote. So I think this uh, quote for me gives a sense of hope in that Uh, And I know we, if you listen to part two, one of the uh, book club members had kind of asked a great question of, you know, what do we do about this, right? And I responded, you know, as I typically do, and I try to keep it genuine. And I said, you know, I don't know. I I believe that we have a medley of different uh, approaches and things, and there's a million different ways that someone would claim that they can fix your trauma, your anxiety, your depression, your all of these things, be it be a supplement, a pill, a exercise, a new way of thinking, a religion, you know, there's so many different ways that we can address things. But I like that he started it out by saying, it's not something that can be treated, 
per se, like a, I don't know, paper cut or something. It's deeper than that. And what we have to do this side of the imperfections of humanity is finding ways to live more comfortably with it and to not be as startled by it. I think this is why I feel very strongly about not labeling people a survivor, um, a survivor of trauma, of assault, of rape, of of whatever. Um, Because I think that while it's well-intentioned and something that's meant to be very empowering, that label is an identity. We, we cling to our labels, even as much as we try to be the sum of all of our parts. Um, I think that's a very natural thing for us to do with how we like to categorize. And if we have that label and that label becomes a part of identity, then we are always tied to our trauma. And that is a fact. We will always be. But I think the focus makes our identity too centered on something negative rather than um, some of the other experiences of our life. We talked about that a lot last week about the potential benefits of, say, a a diagnosis to put to help with conceptualizing something. But often what will happen is the, like you said, the identity goes along with the label. And oftentimes people only get the diagnosis. They don't get the treatment. So then they're leaving an encounter with, say, a health professional or something with this diagnosis, but they've not been given any tools of what to do with said diagnosis. And so they go through their life with this identity that I am broken because I am bipolar. I am PTSD. I am a rape victim, you know. And something that uh, was also mentioned in chapter 13 The author says, quote, repairing faulty alarm systems and restoring the emotional brain to its ordinary job of being a quiet background presence that takes care of the housekeeping of the body, ensuring that you eat, sleep, connect with intimate partners, protect your children and defend against danger, end quote. I like that because we've talked about it before, but if we step away from the framework that a diagnosis labels somebody and it puts somebody in a box and instead go back to the basics of humanity, that we are all human, the world is incredibly broken, humanity is flawed, but we're all trying to survive, we're trying to live good qualities of life, we're trying to ensure our safety and that our food, clothing, shelter, transportation, relationship needs and resources are met. I think if we can come back to that and look at, say, a diagnosis or an ailment as a threat to those basic human needs, we can have a lot more compassion and we could probably get a lot farther as far as treatment is concerned versus just slapping a label on something and moving on to the next thing. I think like the opening lines you shared kind of points out that no treatment works for everybody the same way. A lot of people need a combination of treatments to actually get to a point where they're functional again. And that's not even saying they're quote unquote cured. It's just getting to the situation where they can deal with day-to-day life in a somewhat productive manner. So um, I guess it's probably come a long way, but I feel like back in the day, if somebody had some signs of mental health, mental illness, they threw them in the hospital and locked them away so you didn't see them again. 
Whereas now they're actually taking steps to try to make it so people can be out because being around people is important. And one of our book club members that was here last week uh, had mentioned, you know, basically had asked me, and I had mentioned this earlier, had asked me the question, well, what do we do about it? Um, And to piggyback off of what you said, Nita, page 214, the author says, there is no one treatment of choice for trauma. And any therapist who believes that his or her particular method is the only answer to your problems is is suspect of being an ideologue rather than somebody who is interested in making sure that you get well. No therapist can possibly be familiar with every effective treatment, and he or she must be open to your exploring options other than the ones he or she offers. He or she must also be open to learning from you. Gender, race, and personal background are relevant only if they interfere with helping the patient feel safe and understood. Now, side caveat at the end of that quote, that last sentence rubs me the wrong way because I don't agree and it it frustrated me, but I don't want to tear this apart and get into a whole, because I'm imagining this man is a white man, but yeah, the statement of gender, race, and personal background are relevant only if I stopped reading after that because I disagree with the statement. But everything up until that point was relevant because as a therapist myself, I get clients. In fact, I had a client who, or not a client, but a potential client, uh, someone who was inquiring about services, call me and they were like, I am looking for someone who does CBT therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. And when I called them, I said, hi, I do a free phone consultation. Uh, I noticed in your email, you had mentioned you want CBT therapy. And then being very aware of with the way that they had phrased it, I was like, are you looking for like standard by the book CBT therapy? Or are you wanting a therapist who has some influences by that? And they were like, I want by the book. And I was like, okay, I'm not the therapist for you because I don't fully subscribe to CBT therapy as the only treatment approach. I said, I appreciate some of the aspects of it. However, uh, I am more eclectic. My treatment approach is a little bit more evolved than simply sticking to that one modality. So I really like that he said, don't trust a therapist who says that their way is the only way. And a good therapist will tell you if what you need is not in their wheelhouse. And I like the part where he says, if they don't, if they're not real about that, then your, their priority is not making sure that you get better. It's for secondary gain. And while therapists do need to make their money, a big part of every code of ethics, whether it be social work, professional counseling, psychiatry, all of the different fields uh, of, of mental health, All of those codes of ethics say that you have to practice within your level of competence. And if you're not, you're being unethical and you can actually get sued for that. Brianna, you had something. Yeah, I I was just going to say, I I think you summed it up better with your experience, but um, not on the provider side, but on the client side. I went to see a therapist. This was probably about five years ago. And the reason I... um, left this professional relationship was because this therapist really pushed tapping. And I do think that tapping works great for a lot of people. It was not working for me. It was too much. Um, when I think it, it, maybe it's one of those things, like something that I try to think about is, um, whether this be programming for a community, others, myself, is this not the right program or the, not the right approach, or is it not the right time? It was not the right time for that. I maybe could go back to tapping 
now, but what I needed in that moment was very different. And I think I needed someone to professionally vent to and sit and help me work out my feelings. And she wanted to get into like the root of that. Whereas I was a little bit too confused as to what was even going on, if that makes sense. Um, Just a little too, not even at this moment traumatized, but just under a chronic amount of stress and just having trouble, you know, even remembering where I put my keys down, things like that's how bad it was, forgetting where I was going when I was driving. And so her tapping was so subscriptive um, that when I said, I, I don't think this is really working for me, I got a lot of flack about how I hadn't really tried it. Um, and, you know, I tried to give that a good faith um, attempt and also tried to really reflect on that thoroughly. And then I wound up, you know, leaving her because I thought, I'm trying to do it, but I can't even bring myself to do it. And you are so hung up on tapping in my tapping journal. And did I do this, you know, however many times like you told me to, and I can't do it. I'm I'm struggling to do it. So this is not working. And this is a lot of money for someone who doesn't want to explore another option with me, which is only contributing to my stress. Um, so I really like that line and I really like your candidness and describing how you handled it as a provider. Yeah. I, I shared, I don't know what book club or what episode it was on, but, and I may, it may have been in the after show where I didn't make it to the episode, but, uh, I recently ended a four year therapeutic relationship with my own therapist, mainly because, uh, I've, I've been in a season of very high anxiety because I live with panic disorder. It's probably, I would say, the worst it's been in several years. Uh, Not the worst it's ever been because the worst it's ever been has been 10 or more panic attacks a day back in my junior year of college. That was my personal hell. So not that bad. Nowhere near closed. However, the anxiety spikes have been quite triggering. Um, There's a lot of like life transitions and things like that. And there over the years now, I've, you know, I've written a whole blog post about this. I won't get into the the nitty gritty of it. But over the years, there have been a lot of benefits to, you know, going to this therapist is the first time I tried EMDR um, as a client. And there were, you know, it was a very, uh, you know, I went through a lot of life transitions with this therapist, but uh, in hindsight, is always twenty twenty. One issue is that I I think I wasn't getting what I needed in a sense that you know twenty twenty brought up a lot of like racial evolution and understanding for me personally. And I went through a couple of sessions where it was like, yeah, you know, it's a white lady, older white lady, but she's she's like, oh, I think you're making this about race when it's not. And she did later come back uh, and say, oh. In hindsight, I've been doing some reading and I understand that the way that, you know, so she had the awareness and she was learning and growing and stuff like that. But then on this, it, in hindsight, of course, too, it was the weirdness of it was, it would always be referenced back to, oh, well, you know, I did a lot of work with kids in the projects and the, the eighties or, or whatever, you know, and it was like, I understand black people because of this, it, it, you know, there were some, there were just some moments that kind of rubbed the wrong way. And I didn't think much of it because I was like in distress. And so 
more recently, I think I've been pushing back on that um, and saying, no, I don't think that's, I don't think you're getting what I'm talking about. And then it, of course, came to a boil when I was basically feeling some kind of way and I was stating it and kind of there, of course, to get some EMDR and help. And it was like, you're being resistant to my intervention is what I'm hearing from the therapist. And it, and I was like, I don't think I'm being resistant. I think you don't get me. And I'm also tired of trying to educate you on the generational uh, racial trauma that I have that I'm gaining awareness of. And then it became a, I was attacked <laughs> in my own therapy session. And it was a little bit traumatic, but I'm okay. But it was a, oh, your intervention isn't working and I don't fault you for that uh, because we can move on and, you know, go our separate ways. But it was almost like kind of like what you share, Brianna, is like uh, when someone, uh, a provider digs their heels in and says, no, I'm doing everything right. You're the problem. To a person who's already like, uh, first of all, vulnerable enough to seek help to be made to feel like, oh, I'm the problem because I'm not trying hard enough or something like that. It does leave a really bad taste in your mouth. But also sometimes it's like, ah, that served its purpose for a period of time. And, you know, you move on and things like that. But um, obviously, the other side of that, too, is that you can end up getting hurt. And so I, I you know, going back, I, I think the sentiment of no therapist knows. And, and I like that, too. He says no therapist knows all the approaches. and. Quite frankly, if someone is like hell bent on some like traditional CBT or DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy, I'm like, I have training. I've done extensive training and have experience with DBT. I'm not really super into it, but I mean, like, if you want some influences into my eclectic approach, uh, using, uh, like, say, the DBT skills workbook or something like that, I got you. Um, but if you want me to follow it point by point by the book, I'm not your guy. And I'm not afraid to turn down business, especially if it's going to be pigeonholing myself into um, a particular theory that I feel is inadequate, especially as a person of color, because all of these theories that I was taught in school are made by white men who actually stole it from black people oftentimes, but that's a conversation for another day. I can give you book recommendations if you really want to know the history behind it. But the way that they constructed the theories, um, it doesn't mesh well with me personally, like to wholeheartedly like throw myself into one of those camps. So when a cl potential client is like, no, I want the classic, I'm like, well, I'm not classic. Uh, you can go find that somewhere else. Here's some some links, some references, some referrals. I'm not that guy. I do wish you well. And I'll still give them their 15-minute phone consultation and listen to their problems and let them cry on the phone and you know console them and let them know that they're very brave for calling a therapist. And you know this is the first step on their journey to doing that. You know, I'll do the whole thing because I truly care, even if you're not going to be my client. But I think it's important for therapists to know their limitations. And especially in the climate that we're in now, where this economy is absolute garbage, to not be thirsty for the money at the sake of hurting people or not providing good care. And I think that's, that's you know, that could be expanded to both of y'all's fields of work, too. It's like, well, just because times are tough doesn't mean we need to put bad, say, you know, in Nita's case, bad media or uh, 
you know, um, shoddy work out there or, you know, say, you know, Brianna, in your case, you work in education and healthcare and community stuff, like to cut corners and stuff like that. We're like, we have to, we can't just get desperate and, you know, not do it. So we have to have our own ethical standard behind how we do things. I think that made sense. I was a little bit of a rant, but uh, Brianna, you had something. No, I I was just going to say that I agree with you. And Actually, I think you came to this in your point. Um, but, you know, so often, and we've talked about this before, and we've talked about this in other discussions, but I think it bears repeating. That that parting of the professional friendship might be because something comes to a head. But I also think that we norm- we need to normalize two things. Firstly, I think we need to normalize that it's okay. It's like any other relationship. And if it doesn't feel awesome, you don't have to force it. And it doesn't mean that someone was wronged. But this is your most vulnerable. This is your most vulnerable self. And I wish that someone had reiterated that to me when I really began this journey on doing work with myself. That it's not me being a problem. I don't have to look for a problem in them to justify it. It's okay. I have to look for the most comfortable fit the most the place where I can feel most comfortable with myself because it will become uncomfortable that being the second truth that I wish we more normalize that therapy often feels worse before it feels better that unpacking all of that like it's gonna suck and we're here and here and doing it for the long run um because sometimes like I've been trying to do this work for a while and that doesn't make me higher or mightier, but I have friends that decide they want to unpack some of their layers and they'll go and they'll say, oh, well, I felt so bad. I'm never going back again. And I wish we normalized that you feel worse before you feel better. And to add to that, too, I think, you know, normalizing that it's OK to take a break in these chapters that goes over a couple of different things like EMDR. And um, I think there's going to be a, a chapter on neurofeedback coming up. Um, It might be the next chapter that we read, but sometimes it gets really intense and you need a break because people take breaks from therapy all the time, or just like you might take a break from, say you're on medication and it's plateauing or something. Sometimes people will come off medication and take a break to like say detox or to reset their system to evaluate, like, do I need this particular thing? Do I need to try something different? But also I think, like you said, the it does get worse before it gets better because think about, I mean, we've been talking about trauma and how it lives literally in our body and stuff like that. It's been under pressure for so long. Like some of that stuff is calcified and buried, buried deep, you know, and it's actually quite jarring sometimes to uncover it because it, you know, you release pressure on one part, it throws the other side of the system off, off balance and things like that. So um, it does sometimes, you know, get worse before it gets better. But um, as a person who's also in the helping professions, I must say, sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. But sometimes the therapist is not the therapist for you. Because if it's you, you may be like, Oh, it, may, it has to get worse before it gets better. Sometimes the, the treatment provider is not doing right by you. And it's okay to be like, I'm going to tap out on this one, because this is not working for me. Uh, because you know yourself better than anybody. So I always liken a therapist sometimes to like car shopping. 
sometimes you have to try, you know, you have to test. I mean, it's a weird metaphor, but sometimes you don't you typically don't buy the very first car you see on the lot. Like you're going to test drive a couple of ones. You're going to look at the different options and things like that. Look at your life circumstance, your finances, that kind of thing and make a choice. You don't have to stick with the very first one that you, you pick. So hopefully that added a little bit of context to what you said, but um, definitely sometimes therapy does get worse before it gets better. And as a therapist, I can comment on that. Uh, some people bow out and ghost you when it starts to get, it gets hard. And I've been doing this long enough that I never like hold a person. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold a personal grudge against anybody. Only grudge I really hold is the people who stiff me and then, you know, dodge me on paying for their fees and stuff, but then like, and follow all my stuff on Instagram. And I'm like, you're weird because you owe me money. But other than that, I don't really hold a grudge. So I'm going to stop there. Um, so I've had two therapists before I found you. Um, one of them was a really, really religious base. And I was like, this is not working for me. This telling me to pray about something is not fixing the issues I'm telling you I'm having. Um, the second one, it was a guy. He's an older white guy, former military. And uh, he was a Trump supporter. And I was like, I'm in the wrong, I'm in the wrong spot. So uh, I think I did two sessions with him because he was like in network and was one of the people, uh, my job like recommended. And I was like, no, I can't do this. I cannot. It works both ways too. Like I've had, I've had clients who fall into that camp of they want to spend their whole sessions like talking about how, you know bad people are treating Donald Trump and stuff like that. I remember it was particularly surreal um, during the year of 2020. And literally my eyes glazed over and I was just watching the time. And truly, I was praying that the person would fire me because I'm like, I, I'm going into self-preservation mode. Uh, I'm trying to nod thoughtfully and, of course, challenge because I'm not going to sit there and, you know, not disagree if something is just like foul. But sometimes people take a long time to fire me as a therapist when I'm just sitting here waiting for them to do it. But um, yeah, sometimes, you know, uh, you know, while you might be like, oh, the therapist isn't a good fit. Sometimes therapists have to be like, nope, this client isn't a good fit uh, for who I am as a person. Because at the end of the day, we're just humans interacting. It's a conversation. It's not like one person and right. One person is right. And one person is wrong. It's, it's a relationship. So, you know, like they say, it takes two to tango. Like if both people aren't in sync, then it, it may not work. Which brings me to another quote that I uh, highlighted. Uh, page 212, uh, the section talks about relationships. So I, I took two little snippets here. Uh, quote, study after study shows that having a good support network constitutes the single most powerful protection against becoming traumatized. Safety and terror are incompatible. I'll say that one more time. Safety and terror are incompatible. When we are terrified, nothing calms us down like the reassuring voice or the firm embrace of someone we trust. And then I skipped to page 213 and I wrote in the margin, in contrast, quote, if the people whom you naturally turn to for care and protection terrify or reject you, you learn to shut down and ignore what you feel. Um, I end quote. Uh, I believe we've shared some examples of that here because obviously we all want those, you know, safety, stability, loving, nurturing relationships. But sometimes they're 
they have the clothing of that, but underneath they're actually traumatizing and hurting us. So it's a it's a slippery slope. But I was wondering what y'all thought of, of that. I'm still gathering my thoughts to the reaction of that as a whole. However, um, I remember, um, so after trauma-informed care became a norm in kind of mental health first aid, then there are different groups which have branched out to take it a step further for resiliency training. Um, And I remember we had a consultant come out from the group in California that had um, branded a lot of the trauma-informed based approach. And they had these really interesting um, materials called resiliency cards, which was just help with the client to help like balance some of the scales visually. Um, so, you know, this, this difficult trauma event has happened, but what are some cards that you have in your deck? And um, statistically, the most powerful card for adolescent females was a strong relationship with their father. And I always just thought that was very interesting um, because we often focus on the maternal approach. Um, And so there is a group in our community called, I think it's called Black Father Family something, um, but it offers support for men who identify in those groupings and they are very um, active and outspoken and they offer a lot of education. Um, But that was really the first time that I'd ever heard that. And um, so it just makes me reflect on that because of course we want to look for balance, but that that's a, that's a statistic that has always stuck in my head and made me think, sorry if that was too derailing. I don't think it was derailing at all. I think that was great. Thanks. Um, this to that point you just made is it's very interesting because of a lot of the stories we see, at least on the news side, is that young men are the ones who suffer the most when dads are not around. So for you all to be able to see that it affects the young girls in the household as well is pretty telling, I guess. I was going to add a layer to that because, you know, you thought maybe it was derailing, but it was actually a great foundation to build from. In my work with especially male clients, and I I probably have mentioned this before, it may take a year or two or more for them to ever even circle around to the reality of the sense of grief and loss for an uninvolved father that they never even came to awareness of. It is particularly like I have to be very grounded in that kind of work that I do because I grew up with a uninvolved father and I have the juxtaposition with being a I have having a child and being an involved father and then I also live at the intersection of I'm black and I'm a father and I'm involved and then people like to put me on a pedestal as like and literally commend me for doing my job uh, as a father it's weird but when they come to those uh, especially men and more nuanced black men there's a lot of defense mechanism and repression and avoidance that happens because I think especially for men with toxic masculinity being the norm, we have to present as tough and strong and all of these things, right? And so when 
those things actually do when they do give themselves the ability to be in a safe place in a therapeutic setting or even in like say i have somebody that i mentor those walls come down it's truly emotionally volatile when those things do come up because it's so repressed and so while the girls will identify the card and say and we'll see those trends the guys also you know i i uh, oftentimes say if if the the women are reporting it the guys are going through it as well um they just have different ways of shielding it but that's actually some of my most meaningful work that i do as a therapist because in a way it's healing to me and my own personal like journey of coming to terms with that but then being able to use that quote brokenness or that uh that uh sensitivity point or the ability to resonate with that um that experience to help someone unlock it for themselves and then to let them know that hey you're still safe and you're still okay and also just being able to bring it back around because often these men have kids or have the desire to become parents someday i'm like do what i did I just do the opposite. And so far, everything is working out great. There's just, it, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot that could come from that. But we also got to be careful too, because in any of these sort of like findings or research things, people will uh, try to make it the end all be all. Like, I can't remember what trader Uncle Tom MF um, came out after the, these uh, black, uh, officers killed that man and it was like ah the problem is uh, i want to say black women need a uh, chime in on that one because i can't remember some ignorant shit but it's like we want to give a blanket statement to explain something with the quickness and i'm like have you read a fucking book do you know about nuance but you know we got to be careful not to take it too far or to take some observations and make it the end all be all I think a lot in our well, the the gentleman basically said the reason that that young man was dead is because he was raised by a single black mom, and he actually was not. He was a product of a two parent household, so it was just like you're wrong. And um, it's so like I guess it kind of almost breaks you down when they look at you because you're from a single parent household and they think you're supposed to be less than. So even when you beat all the odds, it's still, but, oh, but you were only raised by one parent. So that should make you like damaged goods for the rest of your life. Um, But there is never any type of anything placed on the adults in that situation to have been like, okay, what is causing these young men to not step up and be parents? Is it because they didn't have an example of it? They don't know what to do? Is it just like, what is it? Like, stop blaming it on the kid because the kid is going to carry that with them the rest of their life. And they're going to always feel like they're not as adequate as their friends that grew up with two parents. And that's not right. It's not fair to, like, hold that for the rest of your life when you didn't have anything to do with it. Brianna, as I was flipping through, I know you're still catching up on some of the reading, but we talked in the Prince Harry book club about the topic of like uh, uh, psychedelics and uh, those types of drugs in the treatment of, say, uh, trauma, anxiety, and things like that. Uh, so you might want to earmark uh, page 225 because um, there's a whole little section on that. Uh, prior to going into uh, some research about medications and 
I won't summarize that here because it's a it's actually a topic I want to do some research on and do some academic writing on. But I wanted to point that out because I know that was uh, um, something that you had talked about. But um, in this, as we're kind of going through this section of the book, we, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, we kind of get some senses of hope, like what are some things we can do about this trauma? So to kind of like summarize, obviously, I just said there's like, you know, Drugs that could potentially bring down the barriers of accessing trauma, such as psychedelics, is one little section here. Obviously, there's your traditional medication as well, um, which we talked about. Um, I did find it interesting on page 227, the, the author was talking about how SSRIs, which stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor, is basically a long-term for antidepressant, which is often used for uh, your anxiety, your depression, and your mood disorders. They are typically not very effective when it comes to PTSD. And to piggyback off of something I said earlier about cognitive behavioral therapy, there was a section in here too where it says the research um, in the empirical studies have shown that CBT therapy is not very effective in treating uh, PTSD as well. So I feel a little bit of validated in passing on that that client that was hell-bent on getting that in particular. But there was one part here where it was saying, and we're going to get into EMDR because there's a whole chapter on that. Um, but it was saying that in one study, they found that uh, when they compared Prozac with eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is EMDR, for patients with PTSD, many of whom were also depressed, EMDR proved to be a more effective antidepressant than Prozac, end quote. But going back to what we also said earlier, no one thing is the end-all be-all for everybody. And I am an EMDR-trained therapist. And when I first uh, did the training, I was like, this is revolutionary. This is so great because I had experienced it myself. However, I quickly learned that it is a tool in my therapeutic toolkit. It is not the end-all be-all because, of course, when you learn a new skill, you're like, ah, I'm going to use this with everybody. This is going to fix everything. And it's like, well, uh, I'm also a very intuitive therapist. And I've learned that in certain cases, I will bring it up that, hey, I am EMDR trained. We might try this on that particular thing. But I don't want to be a therapist that does EMDR all the time with everybody. And when I did the training, that's the thing when you go to people who are like gurus or like gung ho and like really bought into this stuff. There, even how they teach you is like, no, this is the way. This is this is how you're supposed to do it. This is how you do it by the book. And I actually did not like my EMDR instructor because she didn't like that I wasn't going to wholeheartedly like throw myself on the altar of her particular brand of EMDR. We threw lots of shade throughout that um, intensive training, but I got my certificate and that's all that matters. And I'm out here in the streets doing it how the fuck I want to do. But yeah. Medication, psychedelics, EMDR, uh, traditional SSRIs. And then it was talking about, uh, of course, we got some more statistics on how the poor kids on Medicaid are being over-medicated and stuff like that. And I'm not even going to go into that because we discussed it in previous episodes. It's just more statistics to show how fucked up our system is. But moving on to other things, there, there was a lot of different approaches, and I'm not going to be able to uh, go over all of them. But one that I really liked in chapter 14, they talk about the the benefits of touch, which of course, if you're a traumatized person, this is 
proceed with caution because sometimes your trauma is based in touch or not having full autonomy over your body. But on page 223, um, the, the author mentions uh, massage. And so, quote, among rescue workers, massages were particularly popular. Um, a survey suggests that the most helpful interventions focused on relieving the physical burdens generated by the trauma, end quote. And what I will say is for a uh, part of my own particular self-care, um, first of all, budget and routine is that I go once a week for an hour body massage because I am a highly anxious person. Um, and uh, actually, my my doctor is a DO, so he uh, my primary care physician is the DO. So he works from a more holistic um, kind of framework of medicine. And he actually uh, supported me in, in addition to, of course, being on an antidepressant and things like that and doing all of the different things that I do via exercise and journaling and therapy and blah, blah, blah. He actually wrote me a letter of medical necessity so that I can use my HSA money to pay for massage therapy. So I'm able to use my health benefits uh, to use that as a treatment for my anxiety. And though I only shared a small excerpt there, when I've gone more than I actually recently, I went a couple of weeks without massage therapy because I'm planning a trip to Ghana. And I was like, oh, I'm in a budget and I'm going to just use that money towards my trip. Uh, my anxiety shot up really high, and I'm not going to say uh, correlation equals causation. However, um, when I resumed after realizing that I needed that back in, uh, I do very much look forward to my weekly massage because it is it. I well, first of all, I take on trauma because I'm a therapist, and I'm literally having the worst of people's lives thrown at me. Uh, and I love my job, and I don't think it like cripples me that much. Uh, however, when I have my weekly massage, I truly feel like it's being like released out of my body and I get a actual reset. Um, it's very cathartic. And sometimes it feels like emotionally crying, even though I'm not like shedding tears, it feels like it's literally leaving my body. So I'm a huge component of massage therapy. Um, as far as like the trauma standpoint of that, there are many more examples and we'll get to them, but I do want to pause to let y'all comment on some of those different interventions that I've talked about or anything that might have jumped out to y'all in the interim parts of the book um, that I kind of glossed over. I think it's really neat to see how much like self-care actually plays into recovery for a lot of people. Uh, I don't know if recovery is necessarily the word I want to use, but just in order to be a more, I guess, sound and balanced person, you got to take time to actually take care of yourself I and mean, i guess a lot of times we don't realize how much our body actually holds on to the stress we're not thinking about the cortisol and all this other stuff the body's producing it actually makes like the anxiety and all depression and all this stuff actually physical and not just in your head like people will tell you oh just choose to be happy when it's so much more going on in your body than choosing to be happy like it's so frustrating I do not when people subscribe tell me to that. toxic positivity i feel like that in and of itself can be traumatizing the to it is. the toxically positive people i just had to chime in you can finish nita i just needed to speak my my mind on that particular thing because you're hurting people with the just smile and be happy shit yeah it's okay that's all i was really getting at it's like crazy i could be like pumping my gas and all of a sudden some creepy old guys like just smile it'll be better and i'm just like first off get out of my business you're making this worse because you're being creepy and talking to me so 
Yeah, and I thought we were past the whole telling women to smile. I thought we were past that, but there are layers to it. Don't tell a woman that she should smile because you're taking uh, ownership over her emotions. For goddamn sure, don't tell a black woman to smile. Actually, don't even approach this black queen. Shut the fuck up and bow your head in shame and keep it pushing. Um, that's just me being a little bit opinionated on it. Um, but yeah, anytime someone tells you how to feel, you do not have to listen to them. Uh, you have autonomy over your body and you're on your own journey. Um, I'm interested in Brianna's takes on that. I just went on a little a little soapbox for a second. No, I was just having my own little moment of panic. Before I, I got onto the call tonight, I went to pick up food from Panera. I only see this person a few times a year, but every time I've seen them recently, it's been when I've gone to the Panera I don't normally go to. And this guy asked me out a few years ago. And at the time, he, he's a very, very attractive man. So he's talking to me and I said, I'm flattered, but I'm actually seeing someone. Um, however, it was so nice talking to you. He approached me when I was working at an event um, and was asking about the spirits and stuff. So nice guy. Then he got really aggressive and pushy. Um, I don't remember why I gave him my number. I think I just had like an aneurysm by anxiety and just wanted him to go away and and didn't think quickly enough to do a fake one. I don't know. I've beaten myself up about this multiple times, but no worries because you can block numbers. That's a thing. But um, I saw him at Panera a while ago. He had gone in. Um, I waited until they said that my food was ready. Like I got the text so I could just get it on the shelf and leave. He saw that I had a, a coffee cup with my order. And he sat and he waited by the coffee dispensers. And I was like, I'm I'm getting my coffee. I'm not going to let this guy derail me from coffee. You know how I feel about coffee. So I go to make We're it. We're going to talk later about the fact that you just admitted on wax that you drink the coffee from Panera because we all know it is inferior. Have you ever had the hazelnut? It is I don't so want to hear your propaganda. We're here to talk <laughs> about trauma, so we're going to bring it back to he's not going to stop you from getting your coffee. And then no, how did because it go I'm going to have that coffee. So when I walk over, I'm I'm actively ignoring him, and then he starts telling me to smile, and he starts telling me it's not that bad, and I'm just like, oh, this is awful. So at this point, I have now become selectively deaf. And I'm just, you know, moving along. But tonight I saw him there. I saw his car. I saw him get out of his car and my mobile order was ready. I waited. He went in. He came out. He got his laptop. And I was like, oh, he's working at Panera. So I drove through the drive through and asked them to get my order off the pickup shelf because I wasn't doing it tonight. I was like, it's book club night. I like book club night. And I'm not going to be a bad thing. I love that for you. And I must comment on something. Um, obviously, I have a unique vantage point being uh, a male. But um, the experience of feeling you basically you're going through a fight, fight or freeze response when a, a guy 
uh, is being one pushy, aggressive, and not reading the room to where you're in a position to feel like, okay, fight, flight, or freeze, maybe the easiest thing to do is to give them my number. I just want to validate that experience in that I work with a lot of young women who have been in situations like that. It is not a character failing or um, anything like that, because as we've learned through this book, we don't always have uh, the full range of tools and options available to us when we're placed in a situation like that. And sometimes we do the best that we can. Uh, and one, I, I haven't been following him much lately. I need to look him up and see what he's been up to lately. But Dr. Justin Colson uh, had a podcast. I, I don't know if he still has it. But one of the things that he says a lot is when emotions are high, intelligence is low. And so think of that in the context of trauma when we're highly triggered or our survival, fight, flight, or freeze response is uh, uh, activated, we don't always make the most smart decisions. So far, I mean, it's only Monday. I've already had clients talking to me about they were in a shifty situation and they drove under the influence because there was a potential safety challenge, you know, or whatever. And it's like, well, you were emotionally um, overwhelmed. And in that situation, you did what you thought was the best to survive because no matter what uh, legalities are around something are um, are despite how fucked up our central nervous system and uh, you know equipment is our body is gonna until the very last breath it's gonna do what it can to stay alive that's how we're able to survive as a species so um, I just wanted to encourage you on that and this is not trying to turn into therapy or anything but I think listeners to this podcast will probably resonate with that experience of yours. And they also need the back end of hearing that just because you gave the number to the pushy guy doesn't mean that um, you're you're culpable. Um, it also, just because you gave the number to the creepy guy or just because you agreed to go on a date with the creepy guy or whatever, doesn't mean that you deserve to be uh, sexually assaulted or uh, to have been taken advantage of or coerced or drugged or whatever other trauma that could come from that sort of thing. So. Thank you for sharing your story. And then I expanded upon it because I think there are a lot of people, a lot more people who go through that than you probably know. Um, and so I felt that was a great opportunity to speak on that. Also, Brianna, I got my keys right here. Just let me know if we need to pull up. That's all. <laughs> I was texting Ashley and she was not picking up her phone. I forgot that she was at planning commission. But I was like, not to be dramatic, I understand you're probably in a meeting, but you need to be by your phone. Like, I will let you know when I'm out of the Panera. But that I'm glad that you said that. And then, you know, it seems so obvious, too. But you're right. It is, oh, God, what am I going to do? And panic doesn't always make the the best decisions. Um, what's funny to me is that I am one of the things that I was... Um, reviewed on in my last job was that I performed very well under high pressure. And I think about that from emergent situations like it's so weird that that's a metric that people are commended for. I'm like, why the fuck is your job putting people under this intense amount of pressure to the point where we praise it? But that's me digressing. Please continue your story. I just know in my fairness to my boss, it wasn't a metric. I think he was trying to praise me. It was something he added in. Because I had walked into several um, 
you know, potentially life or death situations and done very well. But it's like when I've had a bad experience with someone, I can just puddle, you know, fire in the kitchen, blood, need to call 911, someone actively dying, like poison concern, um, someone with a gun in the building. It's okay. I can figure it out. But when like this one guy, I just like, you know, I freak out. Um, and then finally I was like, oh, the drive-thru, the drive-thru is a thing. And if somebody hadn't driven past me to go to the drive-thru, I don't know that I would have realized I was literally parked next to my escape route. But yeah, working on it. But now that I know that, it's an option for something else. And so I guess that's part of rewriting our pathways too, is not beating ourselves up for the times that we didn't figure out the escape route. Now we know it and remember that path and move forward. This is a great time for a quote on page 234. Quote, activists in the early campaign for AIDS awareness created a powerful slogan, silence equals death. Silence about trauma also leads to death, the death of the soul. Silence reinforces the God-forsaken isolation of trauma, end quote. And not to stray too far on that, but it reminds me of this, uh, the Whitney book I read. Um, where her mom and brother both died of AIDS. So back at that time, it was probably like early, mid-90s. This wasn't something that was talked about. It wasn't as common. So I can imagine the stigma, especially for her mother, um, because her brother was gay. So, you know, it was that. But the mother to have gone through that, I can only imagine that some healthcare workers didn't want to treat her family probably turn on you and things like that so i can only imagine like when you get that type of illness like where do you go for support like if it's not within family friends like what are your options there's a lot of because i you know i i say it every podcast i feel like i read a lot of fucking memoirs and um there's i've been reading a lot of memoirs lately um more particularly like of people of color who are commenting on the experience of living through that time. And all I can think of like, well, you know, we can look back at history and think like, oh, the the Bosnian war was so bad and it was a, you know, crisis. Or we could look now at what's happening in the Ukraine and we could see that. I don't think that people have really even reckoned with the fact that we had a humanitarian crisis going on in this country and how, I mean, I've read many memoirs, uh, Jennifer Lewis, uh, uh, in her, the mother of black Hollywood. We, I think we talked about that after the last episode, but, um, she talks about how she just was watching all of her friends in theater just drop like flies and, how even if you go to the hospital visit to visit somebody, they tell you you can't go so close to them. And like literally the the nurses wouldn't even touch people um, like the, the way that it was being dealt with and um, the stigma around it and stuff like that. Like so obviously, yeah, we're going on a rabbit hole about like AIDS in particular, but it's it's a great metaphor. Like the author used here was saying like silence equals death, like when we don't talk about the things that are traumatizing us or hurting us. 
where it's going to fester. We talked about that cortisol. We talked about the physical, emotional, social, spiritual tolls that it can take on us. Yeah. But we are, we're probably gonna have to circle back around to that one. Um, I'm sure it'll be covered in another one of these memoirs that uh, are on deck for this particular book club. But um, that is one thing that I'm observing more of lately is the black perspective of what it was like to, especially from like a straight person, to go through that time and to see the LGBTQ community first of all be scapegoated for that uh, health crisis and you know how it didn't become normalized until I think it was what Magic Johnson or somebody, you know, came out and uh, people praise him for being like, oh, he's the first, you know, he's the whatever uh, things. And it was like, why did it have to be, you know, it's, you, you can't ask the question why, because it's a rabbit hole. But like, if we look back on that time, I think there's some almost like some reparations and some splaining to do with how that whole situation was handled. Uh, just like, we're probably going to have to circle back around on the fucking COVID pandemic and how things were mishandled there. But here in the United States, we don't really do accountability that well because we haven't made it back to the whole uh, slavery uh, situation. But anyway, what were we talking about? Coping skills for trauma, you say. Okay, good. Uh, so on page 240, writing, uh, they, gave, they gave some research behind the... Um, the therapeutic benefit of writing. So I'm going to share uh, one section here. Quote, there are other ways to access your inner world of feelings. One of the most effective is through writing. Most of us have poured out our hearts in angry, accusatory, plaintive, or sad letters after people have betrayed or abandoned us. Doing so almost always makes us feel better, even if we never send them. When you write to yourself, you don't have to worry about other people's judgment. You can just listen to your own thoughts and and let their flow take over. Later, when you reread what you wrote, you often discover surprising truths. And then uh, later on, it goes on to say, uh, writing about one's uh, deepest thoughts and feelings about traumas had improved. This is talking about a, a research study. Had improved their mood and resulted in more optimistic attitude and better physical health so they were able to link writing about trauma to improved health outcomes and with regards to writing um, i've mentioned this in previous episodes but i've been blogging for years even before i was like licensed as a therapist and i guess my niche was um that of mental health and prior to that i had personal blogs and stuff like that i remember i started in 2012 which happened to be the worst year of my life as far as mental health because that was them good old days where i was having 10 plus panic attacks a day so i even looking back in that time being able to write and talk about things uh was very uh therapeutic and cathartic to me and people would comment to me and say you have a knack for them and for since i've started my own business i've of course blogged about mental health to primarily to have content on my website and boost my SEO so that people can find my website and pay me for services for counseling. But um, I had mentioned previously on a couple episodes ago when, you know, Tyree Nichols, that whole situation went down, I like went off of social media for a brief period of time and 
just on a whim, I'd started throwing myself into personal essay writing of things that are not necessarily mental health related or race related. And I started to like delve into just like creativity, things of my interest and stuff like that. I mean, in the past 24 hours, I've published an essay. I wrote like a humor piece on um, how disgusting men are in the men's restroom and not flushing the urinal. Uh, I also posted a little essay about what it's like to be briefly using a loaner car from the Volvo dealership that is just a regular gas SUV when I've been driving an electric vehicle for the past six months and how it's a culture shock to my system to have to put gas into an SUV and how fucking expensive it is. So like, while those aren't like mental health uh, content or anything like that, me being able to have a place to one use my dark sense of humor and to just like comment and poke fun at a annoyance such as the disgusting men in my office building who use the restroom or to comment on my slight first world annoyance of not having my electric vehicle and having to pay for gas uh in a gas guzzler those things uh, are small annoyances and don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But the act of writing and putting my idea out of my head, given that I live in a sphere of anxiety all the time, and being able to put something out there and to make something humorous that other people get a laugh out of, it is very healing. So while uh, Bessel van der Kolk talks about how there's, you know, actual empirical research to back that up on how it can have some physical benefits, I can attest from first person uh, experience that writing has been a great tool for me. And not just in the sense of like writing mental health articles or blogs or my newsletter or anything like that, but journaling has become a coping skill that has come into my repertoire of things uh since i would say fall i've tried i've dabbled in it before but it's become more consistent since the fall of uh 2022 circa the time that things started falling off with the therapist that i aforementioned is now fired it started to get a little spotty with that therapist i was like i'm gonna turn to journaling a little bit more and not book as many sessions with you um and then the journal was waiting for me when i finally ended that therapy relationship and i was able to process that there and i also threw it in an essay on the internet so writing is a very um is a very good one for me. Um, do either of y'all, any of those like coping skills or uh, treatments to trauma that I've kind of dabbled on throughout this, any of those particularly jump out to y'all? I think sometimes I write things, but I don't always write things um, like in a different fashion. Like I don't always write things to be shared. I found it very helpful to spend time on the letter that may never be sent. Um, I will say I did read the articles you wrote, especially the point of view of being in the journal was very funny. Um, Thank you. Uh, I, I also hate when people go to the bathroom and don't flush and they don't wash their hands. And I'm just like, I know you were just in that stall. I saw you walk out the stall and walk directly out the bathroom. So now I have to panic about touching this door. I'm definitely going to use a paper towel. But we're all grown. Why are you not washing your hands after you finish using the bathroom? Um, but yeah, uh, as far as writing, I do do some. Um, I find myself writing some scripts lately, I guess, to just take my mind off of stuff and get back into some stuff I did in college. Um, 
I think the last thing that I really remember writing that I probably really needed to see was uh, when I started my master's program, I wrote myself a graduation card, put some money in it, and then hit it. I completely forgot about it. I found it the other day. I was like, nice to have extra money and nice to see I was thinking about getting through this process because during this time, I was super stressed out. I was like, I don't know if this is for me. Why did I sign up? But I addressed all of that in this card to myself and I was just like, I knew exactly what I was signing up for. So it should have been no doubt that I was going to get through it. It was just more so being able to show up for yourself sometimes when you don't know if other people are going to show up for you. So that's always helpful. I love that. I love that idea. And I'm glad that it found you at a time where you needed it. Some other things that were, there were literal whole chapters, uh, and I'm not going to even go into depth on them. Um, There's a whole chapter on EMDR. um, And I've kind of been alluding to that throughout this, because obviously when you're thinking trauma, EMDR is, I'm not going to say the best or the only, uh, but it is uh, pretty well known that EMDR is an intervention used to treat trauma and several other kind of challenges. There's also a whole chapter on yoga, and uh, they actually give a little bit about like, uh, I know one of the people who's been participating, who's not here today, had been wanting more information about like uh the impacts of say trauma on pain disorders and stuff like that so that uh the author does kind of go over that as well recently and it comes from a sometimes i'll try something just to spite somebody because we've all determined that i'm a petty individual i had mentioned the 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 car situation uh i don't need to get into detail but uh when i showed up at the dealership with my particular problem that needed to be solved. I was uh, in a sub panic attack at that point because I had went to the sister dealership of the Volvo place that I bought my car at uh, because it was around the corner from my gym. And I'm like, ah, you're right around the corner. Let me just go here. Just because it was a sister dealership doesn't mean that they were going to treat me the way that the other one did. Uh, Let's just say it's great that I don't own a firearm because I would have lit that bitch up with how I was treated. But we digress. I showed up at after I was mistreated at that dealership, I went to the one that I'm more familiar with. And I know everybody. And I went in there. And at that point, I'm like in a sub state of a panic attack, like really triggered, like very like overwhelmed and upset. Uh, because as we know, uh, with the issue with my car had to do with the tire. And um the particular asshole at the other one had basically used fear fear tactics to try to pressure me into buying a tire right then and there um, because he saw my daughter's car seat in the car and he was like, oh, you're going to put your daughter in danger by all of that. And it was, yeah, I'm getting a little triggered just thinking about it. But anyway, as I was going into the other dealership where I know everybody and where I actually purchased the car, I was literally sitting in the office with the service manager, popping a clonazepam as I was talking with him. I said, I'm taking my mental health medication right now uh, so that I don't spaz the fuck out on you. So excuse me while I take a sip of this Diet Coke and this clonazepam. And he gave me a pithy response. Uh, He's uh, a great guy, have no issues with him, but uh, he had, he's a a former Marine, or I, I know people are, 
you got to say it a certain way. Like he's a Marine, but he's no longer active. Do, you know, you got to respect the people or whatever. I don't know the terminology. Don't come for me. But he used to serve in the military. And he was talking about how, of course, he's been through some things and seen some things. And then he gives me the, for him, and I won't say it's pithy per se, but he's like, yeah, I've never really needed to be diagnosed or go to therapy or anything like that. Uh, I've just found that meditation works for me as I'm popping my clonazepam and trying not to cuss them out because one of the issues with my car is that I was given the wrong advice on rotating tires that weren't supposed to be rotated because they're two different size tires, apparently. But we digress. Um, so part of the issue was really his fault. But uh, I'm I'm over here, like, taking my clonazepam, and then I'm hearing, uh, yeah, you should try meditation. And I'm like, this MF knows, one, I'm a therapist. I've said it on numerous occasions. I live with an anxiety disorder. I'm literally taking anxiety medication in your presence. I'm also telling you that I'm low-key traumatized by how the people at your like sister dealership just treated me and talked to me. And then you're giving me a, maybe you should try meditation. It just felt, it all kind of, you know, it, it all hit at once. And I'm like, I think the moral of that story is you may have an idea or you may have something that works for you. Be very cautious about trying to make your particular tool set, your ideas, your menu of solutions fit somebody else because they may be inadequate. And I can give a whole, I've kind of, you know, sprinkled it throughout this episode, but I said massage therapy, I said writing, I said I take anxiety medication, I've talked about going to therapy, I've talked about journaling. I literally ran four miles today. Best time. Uh, it's actually my, I broke my record for a four mile loop that I do, despite having popped a clonazepam beforehand, which is a tranquilizer. So the fact that I was able to do my best time under the influence of clonazepam, truly miraculous. Anxiety is a superpower sometimes, but we digress. Anyway, did all of the things, right? Um, and on top of that, like writing and all of that, I've done all of those things today, but I can say that. I can't go over here to my client and be like, okay, what you need to do is get a journal and write. You need to run. You need to get medication. You need to uh, stretch. You need to start a blog. Like, I can't prescribe my own tool set to somebody else. But I think the takeaway from the story I just shared about the dealership experience, one, don't play with people and their kids. Do not use fear tactics because you might catch the wrong bitch and get fucked up. But I contained myself. I'm a professional and I need to not catch a felony. But um, also don't push your ideas of what treatment and solutions onto other people. Offer suggestions, give a, share your story about what may have worked for you, and then move on. Because all you're responsible is for speaking your truth without being an asshole. You're not responsible for if someone takes that and uses it if they implement it. And that other person that you gave the advice to does not owe you explanation or feedback on whether or not they followed through on your advice. Put it out there. Do the best that you can in a neutral way. Leave it the fuck alone. If they circle back and want to talk to you about it again, cool. If not, leave them the fuck alone. Don't pressure them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's okay to like talk to people and be like, so this is what works for me. 
type situation, but don't ever assume just because you're able to do something that your way is better than somebody else's way of dealing with something because you have no idea what that person has been through, what they're going through that day even. So, um, and I think sometimes too, and this is going to sound horrible and I feel bad for about to say it. I think sometimes military people have this unrealistic ideology that, their way is the only way, like nothing beats their way. And I'm just like, it's so many of you guys dealing with PTSD and struggling to come back and get into regular society that you might need something more than meditation yourself. Thank you, Nita, for saying that. Because I was thinking that. And it's true. Yeah, I'm going to just say thank you for saying that. Well, I think we had some good takeaways there. For the... Next and final episode of the March Mental Health Book Club, we're going to have chapters 18 through the end, and I am looking at chapter 18 now. The title is Filling in the Holes, Creating Structures. So I think it's going to be kind of a continuation of the second half of the book of what are some solutions for the trauma. So I'm interested to see what additional nuggets um, we can kind of, you know, get from this. But like, I think we've kind of set the tone for um, this is definitely the type of book where you take what you can get from it and leave what doesn't serve you. Um, I think that's pretty universal. No, no book, no speech, no person is going to give you all truth, all perfection, all magic all the time uh, because we're human and it's actually rude and unreasonable to expect that of a person but hopefully and i would also argue for the sake of this podcast or anybody listening to this any of the rants or the stories and things that you've heard here that don't serve you just toss it out um, take what you can leave what you don't need but i'm looking forward to this last little section of the book to see uh what final things uh, we can get out of it I know for me personally, I'm probably going to have to run through this book about two, three more times to really like soak what I can really get out of it. But I'm not even going to hold you. This book is going to sit on my shelf for a good year before I revisit it because it's heavy. It's very academic and my brain hurts. So uh, I will circle back to it. Um, I've made many flags for myself of ideas for further research. I particularly am going to revisit the part about psychedelics because there's like a good page and a half on it. And it was brought up in the last book club. And I really do want to learn more about it. And I want to actually do some uh, peer reviewed like um, uh, research as far as like uh, not my own research, but like reading some peer-reviewed articles about it so that I can have enough of a understanding to be able to speak on it or to write about it to hopefully provide, you know, a little bit more insight to the people that I work with. Not out here advertising that I'm about to become a psychedelic guru or anything like that, um, because like I said earlier in this episode, no therapist is good at everything, and that is not my lane. I'm going to stay right what I'm good with what I'm good at. I like books because they give us the opportunity to dabble and sample uh, into different perspectives and into new ideas that maybe we hadn't considered before, polish up some things that we thought we knew or throw away some things that no longer serve us. So, but I truly enjoy talking with the two of you tonight. And for those who are following along uh, for next week, we are going to be hitting chapter 18 through, through the end of uh, Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score. If you're looking forward to um, the 
April uh, Mental Health Book Club. I just announced the book for that. We're going to be doing Jamel Hill's memoir called Uphill. Uh, and in the month of May, we are going to be doing a memoir by Prince Shakur, I believe is the pronunciation of his last name. The book is called When They Tell You to Be Good. So I uh, intentionally are, am trying to get some authors of color into this mental book, mental health book club. So uh, definitely looking forward to those as of this recording. Both of those book clubs are full. So yeah, definitely stay tuned for future book announcements. But um, until next time, thank you for listening and take care. Thank you for listening. Before you go, consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode show notes. You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.